Some years ago, there was a film called Snakes on a Plane. I never saw it. I, I can imagine what it was about. I think I get the gist. But I bring it up because I heard a story that Samuel Jackson, uh, A-list Hollywood celebrity, who was kind of at the zenith of his, his fame and, and uh, his, his success in Hollywood, had just stacks of scripts. And, and he and his agent were going through them, and there were historical things, there were biopics, there were action movies. He could do whatever he wants. And the story I heard is that he picked up the script that said, Snakes on a Plane, and he said, is this what it sounds like? And his agent was like, yeah. And he said, I'll do it, without even reading it. He knew he wanted to go and do Snakes on a Plane, a very simple concept, and he thought he could do it very well. Well, perhaps this passage from Numbers 21 is the original Snakes on a Plane, P-L-A-I-N. You see, these dad jokes are my Mother's Day gift to you moms. Cherish them in your hearts. But it's a very simple story, and it's a very simple message, and it is a very beautiful, although kind of frightening, picture And just as campy and silly as that film undoubtedly was and was supposed to be, this simple message is just as solemn and just as vital to the life of every single person. And we need to remind ourselves of the truth of this message regularly. Now, this is going to be happening while the people have come out of Egypt and slavery. They've been wandering and wandering and wandering. And during their wandering in the wilderness... That a whole generation, for the most part, has passed away. There's very few people left from the original Egypt generation. And they're nearing when they're going to enter into the promised land, into Canaan. So you've got a new generation, a new group of people, but they've learned one thing very, very completely from their fathers. They've mastered the art of impatience and grumbling, something that's been passed on through the millennia, even to many in the church today. They look around and they say two things. There is no food and no water here. And also, we loathe this miserable food that you've given us. Guys, earlier in that same sentence, if you look at the text, there's no food and we don't like the food that is given to us every single day. Well, when people begin to grumble in the Old Testament, God often chastises them. In the Old Testament, often we have people coming in uh, and bringing the people, leading them astray. We have people from within kind of dragging the people down into some sense of rebellion. And God, because he is a loving father, rebukes and disciplines them. And in this case, it is a very harsh rebuke. The punishment that comes is that fiery serpents, and this wouldn't be all that unusual in that desert, but fiery serpents come upon them suddenly and they are everywhere. Fiery serpents, that does not sound fun. Well, God brings this upon them because they are rejecting him, in a sense, as their God. They are lying about him to him. God has provided everything they need. Manna from heaven. Quail, when they demanded it. Remember that? We want meat. You you want some quail? I'll give it to you until it comes out your nostrils, he said. He gave them water from the rock. He gave them clothes that miraculously did not wear out during their travels and shoes as well. God has provided them everything and they have the audacity to say, we're unhappy. Why did you take us out of Egypt so that we could die here in the wilderness? You ought to have left us there. 
Now, most of these people, again, are of a new generation. They don't remember or barely remember the difficulty that was suffered in bondage in Egypt. And still they say, we'd rather be back there than here. They're speaking of things about which they do not know. And when the serpents come, the Hebrew there is the word for serpents, nachash, and then the word seraphim. You remember that one? We, we were talking about that word seraphim just a few weeks ago when we had the picture of God in his throne room, on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the tabernacle with glory, and there were four seraphim there. The, the burning ones, that's what that means. So these are serpents, burning ones. And just as there were those who were burning with zeal, praising God continually, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, here we have some earthly burning ones who are vehicles of God's judgment against those who are complaining about his goodness. Perhaps they're called fiery serpents because of their coloring, it's been suggested. I think more likely they are called fiery serpents because of the burning pain of being injected with their venom, the inflamed wounds, the, the hot, horrible feeling leading quickly to death. Now, there's also a level of irony here. Glowing serpents or fire-spitting serpents were considered symbols of Egypt. This is something that there would have been some memory of amongst the people, and they're saying, we want to go back there, and it's as if God is saying, why don't I just give you a little taste of that here in the wilderness where you are today? So they recognize that they have screwed up. They go to Moses. They confess, and I want you to notice they confess fully and rightly. They ask Moses, quote, intercede that God might remove the serpents from among us. They, they admit that they have sinned. They acknowledge their guilt. They acknowledge that they have no hope apart from getting some deliverance, some pardon from God himself. And then they wait. And he does deliver them, but not in the way they think he's going to. They, they ask, intercede that he might remove the serpents from among us. He intercedes, but in a different way. Even after Moses says, okay, God says he'll take care of it, there's still fiery serpents. Okay, they're going to be here while I, while I follow his instructions, and I construct a bronze serpent on a pole. Still there's fiery serpents. Okay, I'm done with the bronze serpent, and now it's going to be held up high in our midst. Still there are fiery serpents among them. They put this bronze snake up on the pole high so everyone could see it from any point in the camp. And rather than simply removing the snakes immediately, God gives them a picture of how, yes, your sin is deadly, and yes, it has deadly consequences, but look to me and a simple look at that bronze snake, and they would live. A simple look at that bronze snake, and apparently the venom in their system was neutralized, and they would not die a horrible death. Well, our other text that we read was from John 3. 1,400 or so years later, Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to a congregation of one late at night. He's talking to Nicodemus who came to see him under cover of darkness. And you'll recall Nicodemus had a lot of questions and he wanted to know what Jesus' view of the kingdom was and Jesus' view of salvation. And Jesus was very, very patient with him. He said, you must be born again. And in true rabbinical fashion, he returned with a question of how can that be? A man cannot go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time. Explain to me what you mean by born again. And Jesus, in John chapter 3, starting with verse 12, he says to him, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you receive if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Clearly then, the picture that we see in Numbers chapter 21 of the bronze snake on the pole and anyone looks to it receives uh, healing and life is a picture most directly of the cross of Jesus. He was lifted up as a public spectacle. That is why they did it on a tall cross at the top of a hill so that people walking by from a distance would see that and say, whoa, don't mess with Rome. Rome will do that to you. They will make an example of you. They will kill you in horrendous ways. He was lifted up and he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all mankind to myself, people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He is lifted up as a public spectacle so that we can be saved. This is the first actually of three lifted up sayings in John. If you've read the gospel of John and studied the gospel of John, you know that he likes to do things in threes. And it's a very significant one here. All three are in the future tense. As he is carrying out his ministry, he says, the Son of Man, meaning himself, the Messiah, will be lifted up. And of course, also typical of John is that there's a double meaning in that reference. The word lifted up in the Greek can mean physically lifted up or it can mean exalted. In fact, that's almost always what it means in the New Testament. Similar to, again, that picture of Christ in the throne room, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted. And so there is kind of both a a lifting up to mock, lifting up to heap shame upon him, and a lifting up in glory. At the end of the three days in the tomb, of course, he is risen. Ooh, guys, how many weeks have we had to practice? This is like the sixth week of Easter. He's risen. And he is lifted up and exalted again. And of course, we will be talking next week about his ascension when he is lifted up into the presence of the Father. The gospel message then, the good news of salvation, is look to Jesus lifted up on the cross, dying for your sins, and live. It is a simple message, but a powerful message. Look to him and have life. Spurgeon discovered this. He had been very familiar with things theological, very familiar with the scriptures, and yet he had become a young man without ever really getting saved, without ever really encountering God through Christ at the cross. And he was on his way to an appointment one Lord's Day when a snowstorm forced him to take a little shortcut and eventually pushed him into a primitive Methodist chapel. That's what they're called, primitive Methodists. He said that the regular preacher had been snowed in at home and there was a substitute deacon and he was bad at it. Like he wasn't a good preacher. But his text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. And he kept on hammering just that. That was his point. It wasn't three points in a poem. It was one point and repeat. And he said he, he looked at everyone in that little chapel. There probably were about as many people as we have here today. It was, it was a, a kind of small group. And he would say, are you saved? Have you looked unto him for salvation? Have you been born again? And then finally he made it to Spurgeon, who was kind of in the back row, hunkered down. And he said to him, young man, you look most miserable. Have you looked unto the Lord? If you do, 
you will be saved. And on that day, Spurgeon was saved and the church was given the Prince of Preachers who has done so much uh, through his short life and ministry for the church. A little chapel then with an inexperienced, unskilled preacher willing to point to the cross of Jesus and say, this is where you find salvation is far more effective, far more powerful than massive edifices, state-of-the-art facilities, TED Talk kind of oratory. Remember how the so-called super apostles, they kind of pointed at Paul and scoffed. They said, he's bold in his letters, but my goodness, is he unimpressive in person. But look at us. Eh? Look, at, look at how polished our discourses are. Look how handsome we are. Look how well-dressed and well-spoken we are. And Paul says, yeah, you can have all that. What matters is not how well you speak, but when you speak, who are you pointing toward? In the same way, somebody might hear this message. They might have come into the back of that chapel and heard, look to me and you will be saved and thought, yeah, that sounds good. But uh, I know he's talking about faith. Jesus makes it clear, whoever looks to the Son of Man and believes on him will have everlasting life. But, you know, I, I've got doubts. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I read the headlines on my phone and I think, I don't even know if there is a God. Listen, this is what we talked about the whole time in Sunday school. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. When one of these Israelites was bit by a snake, if they immediately thought, no problem, I'll be fine, look to the bronze snake, they would be saved. If one of them was bit and they began to despair and thought, that's it, I'm going to die, what's going to happen, who's going to care for my children? And then in absolute desperation, they went, oh yeah, worth a shot. And they looked to the snake, they would be saved. Now Jesus tells us it's a picture of faith, but it is not the quality of your faith that saves you, it is the object of your faith. Who are you looking to? Are you looking to Jesus? Again, it's a simple message. He doesn't say to the Israelites, here's the recipe for some anti-venom. Get out some beakers and stuff and some Bunsen burners and whip up a batch and everyone will be fine. Better start production. He doesn't say, you need to destroy these snakes. You brought them on yourself, you take care of them. Get out some swords, some clubs, some burning torches and just get rid of all of them. Go St. Patrick on these things and, and get them out of here. It's your only hope. He doesn't say you've got to study their patterns and their movements and learn to anticipate what they'll do next and how they think so you can outflank them and outwit them. He doesn't say if after you get bit and before you keel over dead, you're able to make it to the pole and climb up it and touch the snake, then you'll be saved and a few of you might make the cut. No, he just says, look, look to the snake and you will be saved. Now, there was nothing magical about the snake. The power, of course, is in the Lord himself. This is a great picture of what we mean when we say a means of grace. A means of grace that we're looking to him through this aid to understanding. Now, people can go through the routine. They can look just to the means of grace. They can come and just have the Lord's Supper. They can open up the Bible and just read the words without anything being internalized. They can even come forward and, and make a profession with their lips and get dunked under some water. But if they are not truly believing, it will be useless. Rather, the heart is the thing that does the looking. The heart looking to Christ for salvation will not be disappointed. This is the promise of Jesus. And in Jesus, every promise is yes and amen. 
This past week, we had a, a weird thing happen. It's so providential. Uh, on work day, so a week ago Saturday, Alex and I went to Plymouth Congregational Church, which has closed its doors, and they wanted some churches, local churches, to get some of their, their uh, items and carry on in ministry with them. And, and we were able to get a few things, but we said, well, if the historical society doesn't want that credenza and that cross, that, that brass cross, we would like them. And they said, ah, we think the historical society is going to want them. I forgot all about it. And then we find out, no, they don't want them. And you can have this cross. And I find that out after I've already chosen this text. And good grief, could there be a more perfect object lesson for the story of the bronze snake at the top of the pole than a brass cross at the top of a pole. They would lift this up high and bring it forward in procession as they read the gospel. People must look to the cross to find salvation. It was a a, a wonderful bit of providence to think every time we come in here, we'll see that cross on that pole and be reminded that you simply look to Jesus, look to him with your heart, recognizing in the words of the great hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Preaching on lifting high the cross of Christ. And they say, here's a cross of Christ that we lift high every week. Now, there are some churches who will have a procession of the cross. They'll carry it in with pomp and ceremony. They'll have all sorts of incense burning even. Perhaps they have beautiful music and massive choirs and five-part harmony. And yet it is all solemnity because they're taught to revere it. Empty formality, outward only, just because that's what we do. I've known people, I've known people who get upset if you put something on top of a Bible because they've been taught you respect it. Or if you put it on the bottom shelf in your house. They'd get really angry if you, if you spit on one or tossed it aside and yet they've never opened it and read the words of life contained within. They'd never dream of that. I know some who, who have become irate. There was a guy I went to high school with big kind of brawler of a guy, he'd get really mad if someone used the name Jesus Christ as a swear word, as blasphemously. And he would, he'd get in their face and say, watch it. And yet it was clear from his life and the rest of his speech that he certainly didn't care about Jesus and look to him for salvation. It was just something that would have been kind of pushed into him. It had been kind of programmed into him by parents or by somebody. And it was outward. It was only the outward. The outward has got to be indicative of the inward. This is what we believe as Baptists, that when you go into the waters of baptism, if it is an outward picture of you being put to death with Christ, your old self, and raised again with Christ to new life, then it is powerful and beautiful. But if you didn't get saved and you got baptized, you just got wet. And it doesn't go any further than that. Jesus, though, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We look to him, we look to him and him only. No one comes to the Father but by me, he said. This offends the world today. They don't like having no choice in the matter. I can kind of guarantee that when the bronze snake was finally erected and when people got bit, they could finally look to it and not die, no one complained that there weren't several of them or several other options besides looking at a snake. Come on, give me a choice in all this. And yet people today will often make that complaint. 
We have one way to salvation. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. That is the message Spurgeon heard. That's the message I hope you are hearing. It is the message we need to be reminded of week after week and sometimes all by itself without anything else on top of it. But let me ask you this question just for thought. Why, why is it a picture of a serpent, an image of a serpent? Why not something that eats serpents, right? Like an eagle or a mongoose or something. Why the serpent? I mean, we've been studying some of these heavenly visions of Jesus this Eastertide. It's been pretty standard Bible stuff, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. We say, yeah, he's powerful. He defeats sin. He's, he, he's you know, the, the strong one, the strength, our, our, our salvation, our bulwark. There's the lamb, the lamb of God, because he was slain for us. And when he died, his blood, perfect righteous blood shed for us, takes away our sins. But why a snake? Well, just as the snake was an instrument of death, so the cross was an instrument of death. And it brought with it a curse. Moses himself said, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus hung on a tree. He became cursed for us. He became a curse. He became sin itself. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. It's also so fitting when we go back to the beginning and think of how sin entered the picture in the garden when all was as it should be and shalom ruled the day. The serpent came and said, hey, I know that God's given you all this food to eat, but there's no food here. And the food is miserable because you're not allowed to have this. This one's really good. God may have told you that if you eat it, you will die, but you will not surely die. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. And it begins with a look. Eve looked at the fruit, saw that it was pleasing to her eyes, and said, hey, honey, what do you think? And he was like, whatever you say, I have no uh, you know, backbone whatsoever. This is the story that we get. And just like in the wilderness, they didn't want to eat the good food God had provided. They didn't trust that God was leading them in the way that was best. They thought he was holding out on them in some way, and they believed the serpent's lies, just as they did in the wilderness. It begins with a look, and then it comes to taking an action, something irreversible, and then what do they do? They run and hide. Hiding in the bushes. Oh, he'll never find us here, the God who created heaven and earth. The same thing happens with Achan. We looked at that not too long ago. Achan's sin, where he saw some items that were to be devoted to God for destruction. He saw them. He coveted them. He took them. He sneaked them back into his tent. He buried them. And that created a rift between all of Israel and God. Ultimately, he was punished with his own death. David's sin as well. It wasn't covetousness, but lust. He was on top of his palace looking out at his domain. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He saw that she was beautiful. He looked closer and began to lust, saw that she was very beautiful, had her taken to him because in that setting he could do that. And then the most despicable of things, took her, the the, the wife of his friend, for his own and then tried to cover it up and all sorts of death results from that. These things begin with a look but quickly progress to something far worse, something unfixable from our point of view. But when we think about the state of mankind and how lost and broken everything is, it seems like we should have to then reverse the process and sort of claw our way back out of the pit we found ourselves in. Clean up our own mess. 
We need to change our own hearts now so we'll desire not the enemy, but Christ. That should be the first thing we have to do. Then we've got to dig down into our very souls, grab onto our sinful appetites, and flip them 180 degrees so that now we're focused once again where they should be. Then we've got to somehow undo our actions that have offended our God. Only then could we not look to the forbidden fruit, but instead look to our Creator for satisfaction. That's what most religions try to sell you. A process of doing that. We can walk you one step at a time back up out of the pit where you find yourself. That one look had spiraled downward and ultimately sent them out of the garden into the wilderness and there was no going back. It doesn't work to try and climb back out of the pit. It's called a slimy or miry pit in the Bible because if you start trying to climb, you slide right back down. You are stuck. When they were cast out of the garden, there was a cherub with a fiery flashing sword blocking the entrance. There was no going back. There is one way to be saved. Only one way. There's no undoing the past. Achan, he was put to death even though he said, I admit, I did it, I'm sorry, so sorry. They said, well, God is holy. And he insists that you be punished. And he was taken to the valley of Achor and stoned to death. Because God is holy, justice had to be meted out. And the same thing is true of us, only because God is gracious, that justice was meted out on Jesus Christ. Likewise, in and of ourselves, we're stuck in the miry pit, unable to escape. According to Jesus in our text for today, we stand condemned already when we stand on our own two feet. And yet when he comes to offer the remedy, the rescue that is salvation, he says it started with a look, I'll save you if you only look to the cross. All the other stuff, I'll take care of. I'll reach down and pull you out of the pit. I'll go down in the valley for you. I'll be put to death for you. I'll give you a new heart and new desires. I'll do that for you. Just look to me, one look to him, and you will be saved. And there's one other picture we see here. In fact, John Calvin thought this was the primary picture. He said, I don't know if it works to view this as the cross, but rather to view this as us lifting up Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. I see this as a secondary application. The second of those three lifted up statements in John is in John 8, 28, where Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. He's not talking to Pilate, who's about to crucify him. He's not talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to his disciples. And he's talking about them lifting him up. Well, you see, we lift him up, in a sense, in that exulting sense, every time we come and worship him. And we lift him up, in that exulting sense, every time we proclaim the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. Can you imagine how quickly the good news spread through the camp of Israel when that bronze snake was completed. And they said, the project's done. It's going to be up. You're going to see it right over there. And if you get bit, you'll be okay. Just look. Look in that direction and you'll be saved. Well, the good news for us is summed up right after Jesus said, just as the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He gives us this very famous summary of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through 
him. So we read that if we don't believe, we stand condemned by our sins. But if we look to him, we cannot be condemned. As Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, John 3.16 is famous for a reason. Because it is a good summary of the gospel, yes, but also because it is absolutely scandalous. In our world, a post-Christian society, sure, yeah, God loves the world. Obvi, right? God loves everyone. We're all his children, aren't we? Well, this is an assumption of most people to the point of rejecting the scriptures and negating God's holiness. Rather, when Jesus spoke these words, it was revolutionary to say that God loves not just one little group ethnically or geographically or culturally, but the world, all who will look to him. The God of the universe loves Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. And of course, if we're reading the Gospel of John, we have started in chapter 1, if we're reading through it, and we know that when we read about the only begotten Son of God, it reminds us back to John chapter 1. The Word made flesh. God the Son. Not just the Son of God, but God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming and dwelling in our midst, dying on a cross, and rising again. He is risen. Of course... You think about the, the teaching of Jesus about what we do with a lamp. When you light a lamp, do you put a bowl over it? That would be silly. No, you lift it up and put it on a stand, like putting it on a pole, just like that. In fact, that would look an awful lot like a lamp stand where you'd have a flame with burning oil at the top of it rather than a cross. He says, lift high the cross of Christ. Lift up the, the good works you do so your neighbor will see them and not praise you, but praise your Father in heaven. And more than that, lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. We think about all the holy objects that are made in the Old Testament, right? It's not unusual that God tells Israel, make something, I have a use for it. There's all sorts of holy vessels in the tabernacle. Bezalel made them all, remember? There's the table of showbread, there's the candelabra, there's, there's an altar of incense, and then outside the temple there's another altar. There's all these things that have been made and they've been placed either in the holy place or the holy of holies where only a priest can go every day, or in the holy of holies only the high priest, and only once a year. They're there behind closed doors within four walls. But that's not what he says to do with this bronze snake. Rather, he says, put it on a pole and put it in the middle of camp. It wouldn't do any good in the tabernacle, hidden away. And in the same way, we don't want to take the cross of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and come together and say, yay, isn't that great? Yes, thank you, Lord, for saving us. And then keep it locked here in the four walls. We don't want to be a holy huddle here in our tabernacle, content to just see him and for him to see us and for the light to go no further. That is to put a bowl over the lamp. This is the point of the church to go out and lift high the cross of Christ, the great commission that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all nations. Of course, this whole thing prefigures the cross because just about everything in the Old Testament prefigures the cross. When Jesus in John 3 says, listen, even that bronze snake on a pole, yeah, that was a picture of me, it doesn't surprise us. You know, the, the Hebrew word here, uh, the word for snake is nachash, and then the word for bronze is nahosheth. And, and they're very similar, nachash, nahosheth. You hear how it's kind of uh, catchy. Well, that word can also mean copper. 
And most scholars think probably, even though the tradition always says a bronze snake, probably it was a copper snake because we're in an area here where there were copper mines and a lot of copper uh, smelting and things going on. In fact, they even found a copper snake in a Midianite shrine not too far from here in Timnah. And if that's the case, it would be kind of a reddish color, which would evoke not only the fiery serpent, but also prefigure the blood of atonement when Christ would be lifted up on the cross. And here in John 3.14, Jesus shows how each and every mighty work of God throughout the entire Old Testament points forward to the cross. Everything before the cross points forward to it. When you're reading the Bible, everything after the cross points back to it. We are after the cross. So we are to point back to it. Point to the cross. It's simple. It seems almost too simple. Don't get in your own head. It's exactly what Jesus commanded. Point people to the cross. Just like you wouldn't say, oh, it seems so simple to tell them to look at that snake. Hey, let's do something else. How about if I try and suck the venom out of your arm or something? No, point them to what God said. Point people to the cross. Point each other to the cross. Don't point people to their own efforts and reformation, cleaning up their own act. Point them back to the cross of Jesus. He died to bear their sins. And we also have to be careful to keep our eyes on the cross. And it's a whole different struggle in the church. I already referred to it. I mentioned how it's possible to let the aids to worship become objects of worship. And the whole thing's just empty. And we go through the motions without our hearts really looking to Christ for salvation. And we have the perfect picture of it in 2 Kings 18. When King Hezekiah is going through and purging the nation of Israel, we read, Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, kind of a combination of that word for snake and that word for copper or bronze. They named it that and made offerings to it as if it were a pagan god. These are the dangers of viewing the means of grace as magic trinkets. When you look to the cross, look to the Christ on the cross. He will bring salvation. Satan is the great accuser. And even when we are in Christ, there is danger of his accusations, his reminding us of our sin, his reminding us of our failures to distract us, to tear our eyes away from the cross and put them back on ourselves. In fact, in Revelation, he's not just called the accuser. The word Satan means accuser, but he's called the accuser of the brethren. Who are the brethren? That's brothers and sisters in Christ. That's people who are saved. He accuses even those who are saved in order to try and tear our eyes off of the cross, off of Christ, and put them either on ourselves and our sin, our failings, or on each other so that I say, oh my goodness, I'm not near as good as her. She's far more holy and righteous. Oh my goodness, maybe I'm not saved. Or to look over here and say, oh, I am a lot more righteous than him. If Sean were here, this is where I would take a shot at him for fun. All in love. But we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Remember what happened when Peter was walking to Christ on the water and the wind and the waves blew all around him and he took his eyes off Jesus for just a second. He began to sink. Taking our eyes off of him is foolish, but not putting our eyes on him and not fixing our eyes on him to begin with is far more foolish to the point of being tragic. Have you looked to Jesus for salvation? If you haven't, I beg you to do it today. 
Look to the cross. Look to the Christ dying there. He's dying because he loves you. He died for your sins. He didn't sin. We did. And he died. And when he died, our sins were piled on his shoulders so that his righteousness could be given to us. What an amazing deal that is. And all you need to receive it is to look to him in faith. Look to him and believe that he will save you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with each one of us today. We know that the Lord Jesus spoke at length into the night to a congregation of one. We know that you love each of us and you want to speak with each of us. That of all the billions of people on earth, you care about each one here today. And Lord, you want us to look to you for salvation. We know the scripture tells us that you do not desire the death of the wicked, but that we repent and live. We thank you that Jesus said that the work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. We pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on him day after day, and that we who have been saved would lift high the banner of Christ, lift high the cross of Christ, so that the world will see that there is one way to be saved, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, and then receive everlasting life in his name. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.